I'm going to pray for us as we come to God's word. Uh, so let's pray uh, together. We thank you, Lord, for Karen. We thank you for the work of our eye. We just pray for your blessing uh, upon that ministry. Uh, we thank you so much uh, for the privilege and joy it is uh, to be in partnership with that ministry. And we pray, Father, uh, Lord, that you might continue to, to bless our eye, that many, many more, more kids might come to know you and trust in you and put their faith in you. Father, we also just pray for us this evening. We pray uh, that you might give us wisdom that you might help us this evening to understand this uh, passage. And Lord, please give us the courage uh, to take uh, the words that we hear this evening and apply them to our hearts and apply them to our lives, we pray. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was uh, 17 years old, uh, I decided to um, enter into a modelling contest. Uh, my sister, I talked my sister into taking this photograph, uh, and I thought it wasn't bad. Anyway, uh, so I sent the photograph and can't understand why um, I didn't win the modeling contest, um, but I sent it in anyway. Um, around the same time, I also began to design hats. Uh, this is one of the hats that I designed. Um, the word hats is a bit of a stretch because I literally stretched second-hand used um, tights over pieces of wire uh, and constructed them, put them together, and con- talked to some of the girls from school, uh, talked them into modeling my hats. And some of the girls, like Kim here, actually wore these hats in public at different events. Again, I can understand why those hats didn't appear in a runway on New York or, or Paris. Um, that was my hope and my dream uh, when I was a young 18-year-old student. Um, in Japan, um, I formed a band uh, called the J-Band. Um, no guesses were who, who, where I am uh, in this picture. Uh, there's me in the middle uh, with my beret. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, dancing around, prancing around on the stage. Um, over the left-hand side, that's my, my wife, Yoriko. I'm um, looking a bit stressed as she's playing the keyboard. Um, most of the time, however, uh, this is how I looked. Uh, this is me as a 20-year-old. Uh, I was an English teacher. Um, I'd wear my little waistcoat there. Um, I'd carry a briefcase uh, because I wanted to try and show people that I wasn't 20 years old. So when people used to ask me, you know, Sensei, Nantai, this guy, you know, how old are you? I, I wouldn't reply uh, because I wanted to try and convince them uh, that I was a lot older um, than 20, even though um, in my sophisticated briefcase I had Big Bird's um, English book um, in my suitcase, um, which is pretty high-level English, um, teaching English in Japan. Um, this is how, um, again, um, I uh, tried to look as convincing as possible. In our church, they wanted to have some promo shots of me um, looking like a pastor. Uh, and these were photographs of me uh, trying to look like a pastor, although I probably ended up looking more like a Mormon missionary. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people needed convincing. Uh, and so this is the way that we convinced them that we were a legitimate church, was through um, pictures and photographs like this. A couple of years ago, I also started a master's in theology. Uh, there were eight different um, parts of that. Um, I ended up doing two, and I stopped after two, because I realized that I was only doing a master's in theology because I believed that I needed to do a master's in theology to get people to listen to me. I thought if I didn't have a master's in theology, 
then people would not be interested in what I had to say as a Christian and as a pastor and as a leader. Um, I soon quit that. I'm not doing it anymore. Um, no, I share um, all of these moments of just sheer class um, just to give you a few examples that I think how we can all, every single one of us, we can try and find success or we can try and find affirmation or acceptance or meaning in other things instead of Christ. You know, sometimes our attempts at trying to find fulfillment, trying to find purpose, trying to find life outside of Christ, they can feel exciting. They can feel even life-giving. And on reflection, as you look back, they can also look pretty stupid. But we will see this evening that these attempts are not only futile, but they can also lead to disaster. The beginning of chapter 14, uh, we find out that King Jeroboam of Israel's son um, is ill. The king remembered a prophet that he had met years before, a hijan, so he sends his wife to try and find out if the boy, if the son who is ill, is going to recover. So Jeroboam tells his wife to go and disguise herself and bring some gifts, you know, to try and butter the, uh, the prophet up. Jeroboam doesn't want to go there himself. If you remember, Ahijah had told him previously that if he did what was right as the king, then God would give him a kingship. He would give him a lasting dynasty. But Jeroboam hadn't done what was right. He intentionally sets up idols. He leads his people triumphantly and publicly into sin. And even though last week, you know, what we saw, even though he saw God's raw power, you know, he saw the altar, you know, smash in half, you know, as he reached out his hand in defiance, you know, even though his hand shriveled up and it was, it was healed again, he still seems to think that he can somehow deceive the prophet, and, and it seems even deceive God into giving him a good word for his son, and if he gets a good word of blessing from the prophet, which is from God, then maybe he can extend his dynasty. And when we get to, to verse 4, you know, we, we kind of suspect that his plans are going to succeed. Because old Ahijah, well, he's blind. Jeroboam's wife, she shouldn't have even bothered getting disguised herself. I mean, this is going to be like taking you know, candy from a baby. And that would be true but for the word of God. Look at verse 5. The Lord's told the prophet, he's told the blind prophet that Jeroboam's wife is coming. As soon as, soon as she walks into the house, he shows her that he knows it's her. And he gets to the point. Jeroboam thought that he was a, a smart king dealing with this fragile old man. But he forgot that the, every time you deal with the word of God, you are dealing with the God behind those words. Jeroboam thought that he could kind of trivialize the word of God by tricking God into blindly blessing him. You know, a bit like how Jacob deceived old Isaac. But instead, God's word would expose the tragic 
and true nature of his own heart and his motives. And, and like many people today, you know, Jeroboam isn't really interested in a relationship with God. He doesn't want the rule of God over the course of his life. He just wants God to fix things when he's in trouble. You know, someone has said, you know, he, he craves the light in his trouble, but not on his path. He doesn't want to live with the word. He only wants to visit it. And so God doesn't mince his words. The king has clearly sinned against God's grace. You know, God, you know, has been good to Jeroboam. He says, you know, I, I raised you up. I appointed you ruler. I tore the kingdom from the house of David. You know, my beloved house from David, from King David. I tore the kingdom from the house of David and I gave it to you. But Jeroboam has not responded in kind. He says, you know, you have not been like my servant David. You behave more wickedly than all who were before you. You have made for yourself other gods and cast images, and you have flung me behind your back. It's a really powerful image, isn't it? You know, you're, you're, you're following God. He's right in front of you. You're worshipping him. And what do you do with him? You just take him, and you just fling him over your shoulder. You fling him over your back. And his response to, to God's grace and his determination to, to put God aside and just fling him over his back, well, that becomes the basic pattern of most other kings after him. It's not just the way of Jeroboam. It's the way of almost every king over and over and over again. It's like a, it's like a radio jingle that just goes over and over again. The sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and caused Israel to sin. The sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and caused Israel to sin. You know, the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and caused Israel to sin. You know, as we start to come to the end of 2022, what, what has been the pattern that we have set for ourselves this year? In response to the grace of God. You know, we've been singing about that grace this evening. We've been reminding ourselves as we've been singing about that grace in response to the grace that God has shown us. And have we been seeking to keep God's commands and follow him with our whole heart, you know, doing what is right in his sight? Or have we largely this year just flung Jesus over our shoulders, behind our boxes, behind our backs as we've just followed more passionately other desires and other passions and other goals? For those of us this evening who are leaders, whether it's in church or it's at home or at school or at work, I mean, what is the pattern that we are setting? What is the pattern that we're passing on to other people? You know, even thinking about those of us who are parents here this evening, what, what is the pattern that we're passing on to our kids? Is it a pattern of wholehearted commitment to God? Or is it a pattern of constantly just putting Jesus aside? You know, giving in to other priorities in our life. You know, for those who follow the pattern of Jeroboam, God has some bad news. 
Jeroboam's commitment to follow after other gods and lead his people into sin has made God angry. That, that word there, angry, it means to irritate or to aggravate or to push someone over the edge. Jeroboam's wholehearted commitment to other loves, to other gods, it drives God up the wall. In verse 11, 10 to 11, it was just, it just, it just stands out, doesn't it? It just punches us in the face, you know. Verses 10 to 11, it, God says, Because of all of this, I'm about to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will wipe out all of Jeroboam's meals, both slave and free in Israel. I will sweep away the house of Jeroboam. This is another powerful image, isn't it? As one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Anyone who belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds will eat. For the Lord has spoken. And sadly, Jeroboam's son will not make it. The time of his death will be a sign to Jeroboam that what God has said will come to pass. And you know, the bad news just doesn't stop there. It just keeps coming. Jeroboam's dynasty will, will be no more, yes. But that's not it. God will also strike down. He will uproot. He will scatter and he will give up the nation of Israel because of Jeroboam's sin. You know, I don't know about you, but this all sounds incredibly barbaric. It sounds pretty harsh. You know, we can try and dismiss this. You know, it's just one of those Old Testament things. God seems a bit more grumpy in the Old Testament than what he seems to be in the New Testament. But look at the words of Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. But why all the fuss? I mean, is God just some dysfunctional God that needs to go to God anger management in order to deal with his rage and his irrational behavior? Is that the issue here? Why does you know, putting Jesus behind our backs, why does it drive God up the wall? Why does our causing other people to stumble in their sin, why does it cause God so much pain? Why does it invoke so much anger? And I think it's because of the relationship that we have with God. See, God has done what no other gods have done. God has entered into a covenant relationship with his people. He's entered into a marriage-like relationship which, like any committed long-term relationship, it demands exclusive devotion. Now, when you've got a close friend and that close friend betrays you, I mean, how do you feel about it? You know, are you indifferent to it? You just go, eh, whatever. You know, of course, we feel sad. We feel betrayed. We feel angry. And if you're in a, a marriage relationship and the person that you're with betrays you, and is unfaithful to you, how do you feel? Well, you feel devastated. You feel crushed. And hopefully you feel furious. Why? Because that is the nature of love. Of being in a relationship with someone. You know, unfaithfulness within a committed relationship, it invokes righteous jealousy. And that jealousy is appropriate 
Because we are in an exclusive relationship with someone who has committed themselves totally to us till death us do part. And if a wrong spouse, you know, acts with indifference and says, well, whatever, then we would question if there was any love to begin with. God is a relational God, and he has entered into this kind of marriage-like relationship with us. God is not indifferent to our unfaithfulness. He, He is rightly jealous and angry when we are unfaithful towards him, as we fling him just over our backs and treat him just casually, and as we pursue other gods and other alternatives to him. And he also sees how our unfaithfulness, how it impacts other people, how it destroys others. You know, God's righteous anger towards our sin, towards idolatry, it's not an indication of how little God loves us, but rather it's a marker of just how much he does. That being said, God's word to Jeroboam, it it all seems incredibly bleak. It all sounds incredibly hopeless. But throughout, you know, these dark pages, there are glimpses of hope. There are glimpses of God's grace. You know, Jeroboam's son sadly will die, but unlike the rest of his family, he will have the the privilege of a dignified burial. You know, we read that he was buried and, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken through his prophet, his servant and prophet Ahijah. You know, the phrase, according to the word of the Lord, it's repeated over and over again in chapters 14 to 16 as a reminder that even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of chaos, God is still in control. In chapter 15, Judah's king Abijam, he, he comes to power. And it's not just Israel that it's impacted by idolatry, but Abijam as well. And, and his reign is a disaster. But we read there that for the sake of David, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up his son after him and by preserving Jerusalem. Judah would not be destroyed, just like Israel at this time. Why? Because God would not permit it. God had made a promise to David, and he planned to keep that promise. Judah may be unfaithful, but God would remain faithful. As one writer says, you know, grace is not only greater, but more stubborn than our sins. In chapter 15, we have this um, anomaly, you know, Asa, this, um, you know, this lamp in Jerusalem, he, he becomes king of Judah. And incredibly, he reigns for 41 years. And unlike the other kings, Asa did what was right in the Lord's sight, as his ancestor David had done. And we read that Asa, you know, he goes to war against the people's idolatry. And his reign wasn't perfect. We read that, you know, the high places were not taken away, but, but God was not swung over his back as other kings, as he wholeheartedly devoted himself to the Lord his entire life. And, you know, these acts of grace, they are but fairy lights pointing to the super trooper, the super trooper light of God's grace in Jesus. Jesus isn't just the lamp of Jerusalem. He is the light of the world, the entire world. 
Jesus is the anomaly of anomalies. He's the perfect son of God. He lived his life entirely and wholly dedicated to God. His every step was lived according to the word of God. And even though every single one of us here, we, do, we deserve to face the full extent of God's righteous anger because of our indifference, because of our unfaithfulness towards Jesus, it's Jesus who faces it. He faces his God's anger, his wrath for us on the cross. He dies so that we might live. And so, you know, as we stand here this evening, as we stand here, you know, struggling with sin, as we stand, you know, trying our best to, kind of wait, to, to follow God, but at the same time being tempted to follow after the idols of success or, or affirmation or money or power or sex or amusement or whatever that be, being tempted, you know, just to, to fling Jesus just over our backs, we too, like Jeroboam, we are called to stop and consider all that God has done for us in Jesus. To consider how he has saved us from a life of sin. From a life of just following and worshipping other gods and other idols. But to acknowledge that God has taken sin seriously. If you want to know how seriously God takes sin, look at the cross. See his son. His perfect innocent son being smashed and destroyed on the cross for us because of sin. God takes sin seriously in sending his son to die in our place so that we might live freely in an exclusive, loving, and ultimately fulfilling relationship with him. Knowing that at the end of the day, that is all that matters. Did you notice the summary at the end of Jeroboam's life? It's been a long day uh, today as well, so I'm feeling pretty tired. But did you just, you know, look at this. As for the rest of the events of Jeroboam's life, how he waged war and how he reigned, note that they are written in historical records of Israel's kings. That's it. And the writer doesn't mention anything else about his conquests or, you know, his successes. And I think he does that on purpose because at the end of the day, his accomplishments are not what matters most. What matters most is how he relates to God. And it's the same for us. All the time, all the energy that we put into making our mark in this world may prove one day to be irrelevant. Does it really matter how much money we make? How big our, our house or how small our house is? Does it really matter how many friends we have or how popular we are or how well known we are? If you achieve any of these at the cost of your relationship with God. All those moments when we flung Jesus just over our shoulders may prove to be our downfall. The only thing that will really matter is whether we have been faithful and we have loved Jesus with our whole hearts. As we wrap up, I just want to read these, these words here from Adam Ramsey. He says this, All sin has its power in deception. It is a monster 
disguised as a supermodel, a beast pretending to be a beauty, a marauder posing as a friend. And the power of any specific sin in our lives will be no greater than the degree to which we allow it to live and grow in the darkness. Sin festers in the dark and is incinerated in the light. How do we bring it into the light? Well, we we confess it, don't we? We read in 1 John that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's do that right now. Let's bow our heads together. Just as we've been hearing these words this evening as God has been speaking to us, what has been he's been speaking to you about? What kind of pattern have you been leading this year? Have there been times in these last few weeks, in these last few months, when other things have just caught your attention where you, Jesus has just been God has just been flung over your shoulder whatever those things are let's bring those things to, to God right now let's confess those things to him asking him to forgive us asking him to cleanse us asking him to, to help us to set our eyes upon him so let's just spend a few moments um, just in quietness bringing our hearts bringing our lives to God and, and bringing those things into the light and confessing those things to him right now Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you, Lord, that you might help us to to live, Lord, in in the light of what the Lord Jesus has done for us, in the light of your grace. And Lord, I pray that as we do, Lord, please help us to to be aware, Lord, of the, the ways in our lives in which we are just putting you aside, we're just throwing you over our shoulder. Lord, please help us to keep you front and central in our lives. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that as we have come to you this evening, as we have confessed our sins, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So please do that this evening, we pray. Because we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.